So I want to start from a different angle tonight. Um, our last f- night together, and of course most of you will be going home tomorrow. Is there a lot of feedback on there, or is it, is it good enough? <laughs> if it's not, let me know and I'll adjust accordingly. I want to go from a kind of what you might initially see as a bigger angle on what we're doing here. Um, prompted by today's October the 7th, and in our tradition, uh, this it's not huge, although it's, um, I'll say a little bit about this particular lineage. Um, this week from October the 1st to the 7th is being both celebrated um, as a Earth Care Week, as Earth Care Week in our lineage of lay insight meditation tradition. And today's the last day of it, so I wanted to make reference to this. Um, that in our sister centers in different parts of the world, it's not the whole world, we're not a huge lineage, but it's mostly Western. It's very quite big in America. There's the centers and the teachers and students that have come out of, um, from California, out of the teacher Jack Cornfield, who many of you probably have heard of. And in USA, West Coast of uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. And there's a lot of, there's a big network over there. We're part of the same lineage here. And there's sister centers in Switzerland and France and other places and South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. So it's mostly Western, as you can see. And <clears throat> uh, although our teachers all came from the East originally, from the Buddhist countries, Thailand, Burma, and others. And this week has been nominated, and this is the first year it's being celebrated as a response, actually, to the very real need that we have as a human species at the moment um, with our Earth, or our Earth has with us, however, whichever way around we like to look at it, of what would it mean to bring the Dharma to the table more and more fully in this discussion which we're all going to need to have together as the years move on. And already many, as you know, suffering from the effects of this, particularly in the global south, particularly people with less privilege than most of us. So in response to that, in response to this reality, actually, Um, What does it mean to bring the teachings that on one level can look so inner, and they are, (laughs) like the inner work is absolutely crucial, to this kind of big question where some of us will go, oh my God, I hope she's not going to talk about climate change. (laughs) It's way too big, right? You know, where we can suddenly feel overwhelmed by things of such proportion where the interconnection of is so clear, isn't it? It's so clear, you know. Probably don't need me to spell it out, but there is no little separate ground on this earth where I can do my own thing and it not affect the whole. There never was. But it's kind of more obvious now. It's kind of more obvious now. Emissions that happen there affect someone there and we're reaping the, the collective emissions from the last 50, 50 years ago. They're the ones we're, we're seeing the effects of now. So 
I just wanted to name that and I want to speak about what it has to do with this very kind of fine, quiet work that we're doing here. And, what, and, and what's, yeah, what's, what's the truth here for us, all of us? So I just want you to check in right now and see what's the response in just hearing that much. <clears throat> Where does your mind go <laughs> with issues of great proportion? Does it go to, oh my God, I was just about managing my knee pain. You know, please leave me alone. Or, I've got enough in my heart already. I can't take that all on. Please give me a break. Or, I tried to take all that on, but it nearly killed me. And now I'm recovering and learning how to manage what's here. Or maybe, oh goody, you know, the Dharma and the world. Or sometimes we get to feel our guilt and want to kind of, quick, okay, just give me the collection box. I'll put something in. You know, whatever is our particular way of handling this intimate truth that we're all in this together. And I don't just mean about the planet right now. We always were all in it together. We could never have been otherwise. It's just that we hadn't, we hadn't yet woken up And this is asking us to wake up to the fact that we're all in this together. All of us. Is that okay by you? (laughs) Is it okay by you that we're all in this together? All of us, even the ones you don't like. All the ones you think are the ones causing the problems. Or... The ones, if we could just get rid of those ones, you know, which ones would you get rid of? So I want to really bring it into the, what the the beauty of the Dharma means in our practice sitting here tonight, because otherwise we can go to the extreme of getting revved up and charged up in response to suffering feeling impulsively having to act, compulsively. And there's one thing the Buddha is clear about, that freedom is freedom from compulsion. Freedom from being motivated by our guilt. Freedom from being motivated by the impulsive um, restlessness, actually, that's spinning a lot of our wheels How can we still love that call to complete peace? The utter, utter, empty, transparent vastness, the undisturbed truth of what we are. Can we love that and be in the world? And actually there isn't another way to be in the world. Or the world will spin us. 
It's bringing together really the silence that we love. And you might not always love the silence, but what it calls you to in the depth, the unperturbable, the Buddha calls it. The unshakable release. Many Dharma practitioners sometimes find this tricky edge and I'm bringing it down, I'm bringing it away from this very big picture right now. But Many of us have seen a kind of duality arise between doing the inner work and attending to our life or the outer work, so to speak. And if there was another one thing the Buddha was really clear about, that the perception of inner and the perception of outer are an illusion. He didn't say the world is an illusion. He's not, he's not doing that kind of nihilistic thing. But the, the separation of inner and outer, those are kind of sort of superficial distinctions that help me recognize that I'm sitting here and you're sitting over there, helps us function in conventional reality. That if we explore it deeply for ourselves, that which appears to separate us, when we see it, we see that it's a construction of the mind. And this is what we're waking up to because we wake up to this for our own joy and love of seeing the truth more clearly and because this serves, this serves the whole. I want to read something I found useful. This is from one of my teachers. He wrote it a couple of weeks ago and <coughs> in response to this, our community looking at this question. And he's talking about... Uh, Actually, I'm going to go another way around. I'm going to talk about two teachers. I'm going to talk about somebody else first. There's a, a, a wonderful man I've discovered uh, from North America, an African-American man called John Francis. And you can check him out on... Um, someone's nodding over there. <laughs> yeah. Check him out on the internet. And he's called Planet Walker. And he, back in the 70s, actually, he was in San Francisco. And... Uh, witnessed one of the oil spills in the water there and the devastation that that caused to the wildlife. And at that point, or some days later, he, you know, he was very disturbed by this and uh, you know, sensitive and open to that. And he, at that point, made a vow of silence and um, decided never to use any oil-based transport for, for a little while to see how it, how it went. Kind of a, you know, pretty strong response. And it turned out, and he's the lovely man, if you look at, look at him on, listen to his teachings, he, in the end, he, and he kept checking it out year by year, in the end he spent 17 years, I think it was, someone can check it, 17 years in silence, and he walked all across North America on foot. He got three degrees in that time, he managed to do three university degrees in silence. <laughs> um, and he's called Planet Walker. This was his response. This was a real response for this man. 
And what he says about the environment is beautiful when you see him. He has a, uh, a radiance about him. And he says, he keeps it really, I mean, I'm sure he could say a lot because some of his degrees were environmental degrees, but he says, we are the environment. How we treat each other, this is the environment. This is what he's boiled it down to from what can seem like overwhelming proportions of, oh my God, what are we going to do about To his years of contemplation and silence, I think in that he puts it quite funnily, like, you know, he, he could never shut up before, so he was doing it as a gift to other people to just be quiet for a while. And, uh, but that he's brought it down to something in this. This is the environment. Sometimes we think, oh, it's all the green stuff or it's the trees, or it's, it's all of it. But what he's saying is it's right here in this. That's where, as humans, we, we create and perpetuate the causes and conditions that either lead towards more happiness, freedom, or lead toward more suffering. Right, right here, he boils it right down to this, because moment to moment... We're always in relationship with something. We're in relationship with ourself. And as the silence settles and deepens, we see that we're always in relationship with everything else. Every action we do has an effect on the whole. One of my teacher's teachers um, said that his Asian master would come in to give the Dharma talk and he would make a, a gesture like this sometimes. In fact, you're doing kind of stuff like that all day. <laughs> right? When we get it, when we perceive it from the silence, what was he communicating there? This action affects the whole. There is no action that happens in isolation. It never could, it never did, and it never will. Check it out. We have to know that from the depths because the, the ordinary perception just tells us, yeah, you're over there and I'm over here and it looks separate. Dharma teachings about, are about going deeper than appearances. Hurrah. Who's a little bit tired of living in appearances? Going deeper to the cooling and the dispassion. The Buddha talks about, yes, waking up to the dispassion, the cooling out, the dispassion that can hold passion. That our passion isn't running us. It's held in a context where the action that is born of love and energy and vitality is coming from the place that is not attached to the result. So this is the bit from my teacher that I was going to read, my other teacher. He says, when the Buddha speaks about the world, uses the phrase the world, what he means is the inner domains of mind and beliefs and all that happens, so-called inner, 
and the immaterial outer world, culture, social structures, all of it, all of it co-arising together. This is the world, he says. And the Buddha refers to and addresses this world with his practice and map of awakening. He's not just addressing the bit that arises in here. This is really important. (coughs) The Buddha taught the Dharma Vinaya. The Dharma addresses the, uh, uh, the practices of the teachings, we could say. And the Vinaya is about the behavior and our conduct in the world. It's for the monks and nuns. They have a very particular code of conduct that is designed to have them live, even if they haven't fully realized it yet, in complete harmony with the environment, the totality, living in a way that is harmless, that is uh, supportive, that is relational, that is um, living the interdependence, even if we haven't fully gotten it yet at all levels. So he goes on to say, um, "Yeah, which we humans are an intrinsic aspect of this world. We are an aspect of this world that can reflect on itself and that can thereby develop a holistic wisdom that embraces, so just see this from what we've been doing here, that embraces and transcends any point or detail within the whole. So right now, you don't have to think of the, the big world. That's We can, if you like. You can look at this world that arises on your cushion. It's our microcosm, right? That embraces and transcends any detail that arises within the whole. And you see that that's what we've been practicing. The details arise. The thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, the mind states. They're the details always the details, that embrace the details. We don't go, oh, there's no details, it's all empty, forget about it. Embraces the details and transcends the details. So a wisdom that embraces and transcends any point or detail within the whole, such wisdom accepts and cares for all, but is not attached to or confined to any position within the cosmos. How about that? Not attached to or confined by any position in the cosmos. You're not saying it has to be like this now. It's what we've got to do. You know, when action comes from that, it leads to more stress. Not attached to any position. whether that be self, other, a mind state, a tree, a society, or infinite consciousness. How about that? You're not confined to infinite consciousness. doesn't sound bad, does it, to be confined to infinite consciousness. Not confined by any of it. This, he says, is what the Buddha referred to as awakening. This is awakening. Embracing and transcending all the detail not being confined to any one piece of it and in the service of it all. 
This is awakening. This is awakening. So how are we doing that here? How are we doing that here? We do our work at Gaia House. You've been doing your work to clarify what's arising in your location, right? The heart-mind keeps bringing things for us to see, and at some point we go, oh yeah, okay. We try and ignore them, we try and fix them, we try and squeeze them, we try and do something other than experience them. Finally we go, oh, okay, okay. It's this, it's this pain, it's this contraction, it's this expansion, it's this thought, it's this jealousy, it's this envy, it's this loneliness. This arises in our heart mind. There is our responsibility for what arises here. Not what we should have done way back, but that's just coming into the present for us to hold the detail and transcend the detail. To both see it clearly and feel it at the same time. We've been doing that work here. So let's bring it right back to the brass tacks. I think that's the expression, isn't it? Breathing in and breathing out. Breathing in. Anybody holding their breath? Because now we've got to fix the world. We don't. That's actually one of the beauties. And somebody saw it today in the group actually, seeing for herself where the mind was spinning stories about her work as a, in one of the caring professions and um, seeing that she was spinning scenarios. And it, when she looked at it, she saw it was always going to try to fix the suffering. Which sounds really reasonable, doesn't it? It sounds so reasonable. It's like, thank you. Someone cares, right? But she actually realized that wasn't where she was and didn't need to be happening. But there was, I think she said something a bit compulsive about it. When she saw that she wanted to fix, that released, that detail was seen and transcended. That then let her see. I'm trying to remember what happened next. There was a a number of insights along the way. That then let her see that there was something in the fixing that just wanted everything to be all right. Again, understandable, right? I just want everything to be all right. What she saw, though, even though that's, on some level, wholesome, what she saw was that that wanting everything to be all right had a little bit of not quite allowing the suffering, to be there first. It's a little like I said earlier, sometimes the reaction to suffering is, oh, let me, let me do something about it, right? Because it's hard to bear. It's hard to bear. It's hard to witness the way we are together sometimes and the results of that. It's hard to bear without tightening and closing. And as she saw that, a whole in her belly opened, again, a transcending of that detail of the compulsive need to fix. She widened in the belly. She saw her people that she cares about come to mind 
and there's first an allowing. It's like this. Resting with the allowing. And from there, there can be action. Compassion sometimes wants to act, very often wants to act. But the compassion that we all have for caring enough to even sit with our own mind, that compassion can widen and deepen. Like the metta we explored today, it is a boundless quality. It can go wider and include more detail of suffering without becoming it. Include the detail and in transcending it resonating with the detail of our own karmic inheritance, our own and our own. It's all our own. So when we sit sit on our cushion and have the courage to breathe in and out and let go of a moment some of the compulsions of mind or action (coughs) one of the things we notice is that um, some of it, it can show up first like we're looking outside for something to tell us like someone to smile at us or somebody to basically we want something to resonate with as human beings we are resonant creatures we resonate, we feel. This chitta, the chitta is the heart-mind, it's the whole resonant, receptive, intelligent, touchable, available, feelableness that we are. This is called the chitta. It's not just this mind, it's the whole heart-mind sensitivity, availability, responsivity, can also responds. Right? That resonates and we like it to resonate because otherwise we don't feel alive. We want something to chime with, right? That's why we like things that we chime with. We have friends that we like the resonance with. We hang out with people that we like what happens here when we're with them. On retreat, we have a little bit of a fast from these kind of external resonances and we miss that sometimes. It's like longing for our cat or our someone to smile at me, or at least a note on the board, you know. Have you ever done that yet in these three days? Like, <laughs> looking, hanging around at the notice board, hoping, hoping someone's written you a note. Want a, something to resonate with, want to feel seen, want something to chime with, I'm here. Right? One time, I, I've told this story many times, I was, I didn't know that, we mostly don't know that's what we're seeking. <laughs> right? But that's, we're resonant creatures. We want to feel. We want to feel alive. I was hanging around that washing up area. That's really, you know. <laughs> there's, more, there's nicer places in the world. But I was hanging around that washing up area and, and uh, there was buckets. I don't, I don't even know if they're still there where you put the dirty tea towels, used tea towels. Are they there still? This is, I like to say this is a very long time ago. <laughs> I can't remember when it was. 
And uh, I was hanging around there until, you know, at the point we clock, it's like, oh, what's going on? What am I doing? Hanging around the washing up area. And I, there was a bucket there that had the words used tea towels on it in red pen that I had written about three years before. <laughs> Sometimes it can feel so lonely. <laughs> I was happy with a bucket. Right? And then and it's like the heart was lonely. It did want something to say, Yeah, you're all right, Catherine, it's okay. It's okay. It's 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 that sort of tragicomic kind of human thing, isn't it? <laughs> Like, but what the point of that is, we could say that's really sad, you know. But what the point of that is, if we go through those thresholds where there isn't something that's, that's resonating, if it invites the chitta to start to resonate with itself, right? Rather than needing my cat to snuggle up to, to feel softness, right? The chitta doesn't have that here. The chitta, the heart mind, has to start resonating with itself. And as it starts resonating with itself, it resonates with the pockets of the places we haven't been able to resonate with before, like the loneliness, like the barren parts of the heart-mind that haven't been breathed into life, haven't had that detail embraced and transcended yet with compassion and wisdom. The stale parts of the chitta, they're just kind of, you know, it's a bit stagnant sometimes, pockets of our soul, so to speak. As well as what starts to resonate are all the noble qualities, right? Also what is our aspiration, our joy, our kindness, our consideration, our gratitude, our appreciation, they start to resonate more as well, right? That's the point of all this fasting from having a good time, (laughs) is that the chitta starts to resonate with itself and we do the work. This is our world work while we're here on this cushion because as we let those old stagnant or crusty pockets, as it were, be, start to be allowed into the light of awareness, they start to break up, dissolve, be digested, move on, liberate, and it leaves a little bit more space for what? The Buddha, it said that a Buddha, and Buddha means awake. It doesn't just mean a man from North India 2,600 years ago. It means awake, awakening that in us which is awake. That sacred aspect that can see what's happening, touch the detail intimately and automatically is wider than it. It's said that a Buddha lives in, I like this phrase, sunyata vihara. Vihara means a dwelling place, where you you hang out, a vihara. Sunyata means empty. Buddha dwells in sunyata vihara, empty. He hangs out in emptiness. Empty here does not mean deficient or lacking or looking around for something to do. (laughs) It means he's emptied out the greed, the hate, 
the confusion, have gotten emptied out, which leaves an awful lot of room. An awful lot of room to be alive, to be a human being. Because the chitta, the heart mind, is responsive. And he made a big response. This, that, the one from 2,600 years ago. It's a big response, a big teaching that he offered. It's called the turning of the wheel. A map, a human map for us to look at and discover for ourselves the fruits of. A Buddha lives in Shunyata Vihara. Hmm. So we do our work, our own work of emptying out. It clarifies the chitta, it gets a little bit more clarified. Right? Do any of you have that sense that it, it's not like you know it's being evaluated? We see it for ourselves, just we start to see things more clearly. That's a function of being a bit more clarified. The grass looks greener. We see the angry thought as an angry thought. We see the light in someone else's eyes. We see the dodgy bits in our own heart. We see the light in our own heart. We see the still, dark peace of our own heart. And we do our work, right? The work is the part where, ah, there we are in a moment of calm, a moment of peace, of ease, of resonating, of openness, hanging out, sensing. And before we know it, something's arisen into consciousness and we've spun it and we're holding on tightly to a thought. Somebody, I don't know what somebody did. Somebody always does something, don't they? Somebody did something and we're reacting in some way or they didn't do something and we're reacting in some way. Maybe let's say we find ourselves angry and we're spinning the story around that. Here's the work. It's not that that shouldn't happen. There may be old angry pockets to, to digest. Right? Don't go looking for them, but they pop up. There it is. We're holding on. Without that sacred knowing aspect, we're spinning this anger, and then we spin another plate, another story of I shouldn't be angry. Right? Then we've got two plates spinning. And then we do another one called meditation, and we spin that, and we tighten, and we lock down, and, and then we're in a real pickle. In the middle of the spinning, whatever it is you're spinning, Can you see it, that something has just gotten picked up out of the infinite sea of possibilities of what consciousness can come up with, and it can come up with anything. Look what it it does. In the infinite sea of that, we've picked something up, and we've become it. The sense of separate self is born right there and then. Our work is to stand in that sacred knowing, in the moment, ah, This is anger. That which sees the anger is not bound. That which perceives the heat of the anger is not burning in misery. It's seen. This is sacred. 
This is sacred right there that can see the detail and is already wider than it. In the middle of the spin, we wake up. We fall awake right there. Don't create a counter spin that says I shouldn't be having that or or I create the counter spin of holding on to my breath and widening, softening, transcending, breathing with the heat, letting ourselves sense it. This is sacred. This is awake. This is not perpetuating more dukkha in the world and it's clarifying and clearing up what arises on this seat. Sometimes we wake up in the middle of a psychodrama. It's okay. It's the waking up that is our refuge, that seeing, hearing, that which hears the cry of the world. You know, one thing that's said about this image here, Kuan Yin, she's embodying a quality that is a human quality um, of compassion. And it's said that, I think this is very interesting, it's two things are said, is that she came to awakening by inquiring who hears. What is that that hears? Can you just sense it right now? Sense the hearing. And there's my, this voice making sounds that make an impression, but what's hearing? Is it you? Right now, what's hearing the silence? She came to awakening by inquiring who hears, asking herself that question. It's also said that she hears the cries of the world and pours her healing balsam on them. She hears the cries of the world. Right there, it's like that detail, and we can hear more and more cries. I think as we, we as our capacity develops, the cries that arise internally, of we could call it sometimes our old material of places that hasn't been heard, and it's more than that also. It's the cries of the world arise right here on this seat. All beings, if we hang out long enough, keep popping up in this location. The sad one, the righteous one, the warring one, the benevolent one, the loving one, the hateful one, the one that wants to annihilate, the one that would give everything in love. They all arise here. The detail and something much bigger than the detail. How would it be to rest in that knowing, in that kind of knowing. (laughs) Either the lights get more dim every year or it's that I'm getting older. (laughs) (laughs) 
definitely the latter. <laughs> Gosh, the arrogance of youth. I used to, I, I used to, I, I've done it this year and I'm probably still arrogantly youthful compared to what I'll know in 10 or 20, 30, 40 years' time. But the group lists that we write up, each year I'm thinking, oh, I need to write them bigger. Not everyone's going to be able to see those. Those kind of small privileges that we have when we have good health that we don't even know is a privilege. Yeah. Well, this is taken from Herman Hesse from his book called Siddhartha, whom I'm sure a lot of you have read it. Siddhartha listened. He was now listening intently, completely absorbed, quite empty, taking in everything. He felt that he had now completely learned the art of listening. He had often heard all this before, all these numerous voices in the river. But today, they sounded different. He could no longer distinguish the different voices, the merry voice from the weeping one, the childish from the manly one, They all belonged to each other. The lament of those who yearn, the laughter of the wise, the cry of the indignant and the groan of the dying. They were all interwoven and interlocked, entwined in a thousand ways. All the voices, all the goals, all the yearnings, the sorrows, the pleasures, all the good and the evil, all of them together with the world, all of them together with the stream of events and the music of life. When Siddhartha listened attentively to this river, it, to this song of a thousand voices, when he did not listen to the sorrow or the laughter, did not bind himself to any one particular voice and absorb himself into it, then he heard them all the unity, then the great song of a thousand voices consisted of one word, perfection. And our mind can cry out, but it's not perfect, it's terrible. Yeah. And what sees that? What really serves that? What is it that truly serves? In some of the literature now that's coming out around the interface of, and I'm sure some of you probably know a lot more than me or have worked in these fields, but the interface of um, uh let's say, a more Eastern tradition, spiritual practice, and uh, social change. Because the Western spiritual lineage had a, has a good, a better track record, in a sense, with that. Um, that one of the ways it's spoken about, which I really like, is what's, what they're calling the um, coming together of the silence of the sage and the passion of the activist, right? That neither is enough anymore for us. 
one of the uh, one master from the Vietnamese Zen tradition, Thich Nhat Hanh, he's known for saying that the next Buddha will be, wait for it, <laughs> you want it to be you or not? <laughs> oh God, I hope it's not me. <laughs> the next Buddha will be the Sangha. The Sangha means, that's a word we haven't used that much, means the... Um, it means all of the like-minded beings who's, and it, you don't have to be a Buddhist to be a like-minded being, all beings who sincerely walk a path of ethics, cultivation of mind, and awakening. The next Buddha will be the Sangha. Let's just play with that for a bit. It takes the pressure off, doesn't it? <laughs> but it also puts the pressure on, because it takes all of us. And here it's not us in an exclusive sense, it's, it's us waking up together as a planet also. The next Buddha will be the Sangha, the definition of awakening that I gave from my other teacher in the beginning. Right, to, to develop holistic wisdom that embraces and transcends any point or detail such wisdom accepts and cares for all but is not attached to or confined to any position within the cosmos, whether that be self, other, mind state, tree, society, or infinite consciousness. Maybe that's something we do together. Maybe we wake up together this time round. Awakening is awakening. That sacred knowing awakeness is what it is. It's timeless. But the way awakening manifests in the world changes according to conditions. The Buddha woke up, that Buddha woke up in a different world. Pre-industrial, I think... I think agrarian, pre-carbon. We're waking up in this world. And one of the things about awakening while it is timeless and beyond time and space, the face that it takes in the world keeps changing. It's always a creative response. Somebody once asked a Zen Zen master, what was the Buddha doing during her lifetime? the po- poetic opening there. What was the Buddha doing during her lifetime? And the Zen master replied, an appropriate response. They're good, aren't they? They're just to the point, those guys. <laughs> Don't have to sit here for 45 minutes. <laughs> it's an appropriate response. Good night. Right. It's an appropriate response. Awakening... It's freed up, it's shunyata vihara, it's emptied out, it's done its work, and it's freed up to respond. And not necessarily the response that I think I have to make, but the response that comes when we're knowing our non-separateness. Right? And we know that more and more the separating boundaries soften. They show up here because we need to work with them. We'll feel our separateness more acutely at times. 
because the light's shining on it. We go, whoa, look at that. I feel really isolated, really separate, really different, really. That's because the light's bright and we're seeing it. Falling awake together right here and now because there isn't another moment. That we don't have to tighten down around suffering. That's really one of the primary lessons that we're learning here. And our capacity grows. We don't have to fling ourselves and force ourselves beyond our capacity. Our work in any one time might be something really detailed and look small to on some level. Other times it might be look really big. But the extent to which we're able to be authentic is really the point. Sometimes our work is just to keep our feet on the ground. Thank you for doing that. Sometimes our work is to stay silent for 17 years. Thank you, John Francis, for doing that. Sometimes our work is to be really out there in the precinct. Thank you for doing that. Sometimes our work is to retreat. Staying as close as we can to find the appropriate response that's authentic, that's where we are, not who we think we should be, because that just kills the joy. And when the joy is killed, the life goes out of our best intentions. But also not to underestimate or overlook ourselves as part of all of this together. One of the things that I found very humbling, actually, about our community picking up this Earth Care Week was that, and I was getting emails from the teacher colleagues in USA, and this week there's these events in Washington, D.C., and these events over there, and these discussions and these social action things and all of that. It's that we're talking to each other about this with the love of the Dharma as its basis. And that's linking us up in a whole new way. It's like lights, you know, like you see it with the internet, actually, when they do a map of it. It's like lights kind of connecting dots all the way around. And yes, Brad clearly and beautifully pointed to the limitations and where we get hooked and sucked and lost in all of that. But one of the beauties of it is the... It actually depends on the consciousness that engages that technology as to where we go with it. And there's something about that linking up. It's like lighting up with my colleagues that I don't see because I'm over here, but have been Dharma friends from donkeys years ago in wherever they are, San Francisco. Coming together with this love of the silence and our inevitable intimacy with each other. And I'm not just meaning these guys now, I'm meaning all of us. As we wake up, we feel more... Well, let me, let me put it from one of the Zen teachers, they do it better. He said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. 
To study the self is to fully acknowledge the self. To fully acknowledge the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become intimate with all things. Is to know our intimacy with all things. And if the word intimacy doesn't work for you, if you go, oh, intimacy, some of us have that cringe with that word. It's not some kind of smothering thing. It's free. And it's just how it is. The air we breathe, it's not ours. belongs to all of us. practice we do even as we see as we go along the path and maybe you know this very well for yourself isn't just for us it can't be there isn't such an isolated thing and yet you're fully included more magnificently than our small mind could know I think I'll finish with this all this <laughs> I'm going to be greedy and do both <laughs> what do you do when you want to do everything hmm Maybe I'll do this one now and one tomorrow. How about that? This uh, is a very famous verse from the tradition, from Shantideva. Um, the verses of the Bodhisattva, the one who uh, dedicates their practice of awakening for the benefit of all of the whole. And... Try not to take it all logically or argue with the sort of poetry of it. Let it uh, resonate with the, the heart-mind in the place that may know this on some level or very deeply. May I be the medicine for the sick and the weary. May I be their physician and their nurse until disease appears no more. May I strike down the anguish of thirst and hunger with rains of food and drink. May I be food and drink to those in famine and disaster. May I be an inexhaustible treasure for those in need. May I give them all they desire now and forevermore, everywhere, May I be a protector for the unprotected, a guide for wanderers, a boat, a bridge, a causeway for those who desire the other shore, a lamp for those who need a lamp, a bed for those who need a bed. And may I be a wishing jewel, an inexhaustible vase, a magic spell, a great medicine, a wish-fulfilling tree, a cow of plenty, for all beings. As the elements of earth 
and water and fire and air are for the use of all beings who dwell in all of space. In many ways, may I be the means of sustenance for the realm of beings in all of space until they have passed into complete freedom. And by my practice, may the blind see and the deaf hear. May the fearful cease to tremble and the afflicted be consoled and the weary be made content. May the sick be made whole again and those in bondage freed. May the weak be strong and loving. And as long as the earth and the sky shall last, may I remain here to heal the sorrows of the world. As long as the earth and the sky shall last, may I remain here to be with all beings as we wake up together. Let's sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.